Good morning. We are in the season of Advent, and uh, it's so great to, to listen to these old Christmas songs and hymns and carols. For me, they're nostalgic. There's a beauty to it. There's a poetry to it. There's a, theolo- a rich theology to it that I, I think is very meaningful, and we only sing them you know, once a year. Um, I want to open up with the words of an old uh, Christmas hymn. And you probably have heard it before. Here are the words. It says, We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. These are the words written by a man named John Henry Hopkins all the way back in 1857 for a Christmas pageant in New York City. You probably didn't know this was the first American Christmas carol. So, you know, it's hard to write new Christmas music. Um, This is one of the the good hymns that came out of our our country back in in New York City. Um, and And it communicates this story about the three kings or the wise men. And I I bring that up because today we're talking about the wise men, the magi, the three kings, and we're in a series on Advent where we're looking at the characters of Christmas through the lens, uh, looking at Jesus uh, through the lens of these characters of Christmas. Um, And the passage I'm I'm going to be uh, preaching through today, I actually had done a sermon on this passage like three years ago as we were going through Advent. It's in Matthew chapter 2. And it was on the Magi. And so I was like, this will be great. You know, they come after the birth of Jesus. So I'll do this sermon the Sunday after Christmas. And, you know, I I was super excited to dive into the Magi and get ready to preach it. And then the Sunday after Christmas is like the lowest attended Sunday of the year. So there were like 40 people here. And um, I was like, man, I I might want to do that again sometime. So... Maybe you were here for that. Maybe you were, uh, you know, part. When we were kind of splitting up the series, looking at different characters, Tyler's like, I'll take Joseph. And Elizabeth's like, I'll take Mary. And I'm like, oh man, I guess I'm stuck with the Magi. I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Um, but so this is a, a re- rehashed uh, message from three years ago with some different spins on it. But I, I want us to look at Jesus through the lens of these uh, three kings, through these wise men, um, the Magi. So if you want to open up to Matthew chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. There's a lot going on in that opening paragraph of this story. Jesus has been born. Uh, We we like to think that the wise men are in the nativity scene. Um, They're probably not. And I don't want to ruin Christmas for you, but they're probably not in the nativity scene. Um, It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, then it tells us that he's born in Bethlehem. And uh, there's, there's an interesting little storytelling uh, thing going on here. Bethlehem, what it means in, in its language is the house of bread. And so if, you're, if you've read the gospel stories, you know Jesus is called the bread of life. So the bread of life is born in the house of bread in Bethlehem. And then it tells us during the time of King Herod. And Herod, um, Herod is known as Herod the Great. 
uh, but he was, he was uh, great for things that we may not, uh, well, we, actually, we might actually consider those, those valuable, great things. He's great at building things. He was helpful in war. Um, he helped build the temple and palaces and cities. Um, and so he was a powerful ruler. He worked for Rome, uh, but they called him Herod the Great because of everything that he was accomplishing. He was also a mad king. And like you see this throughout history, a king that becomes suspicious and paranoid. So any rival he would attack and eliminate, he murdered his wife, his mother-in-law, his eldest son, and two of his other sons because he was paranoid of them. Like he was willing to kill his own family to preserve his power. Augustus, emperor of Rome, has this famous quote that historians uh, draw our attention to, talking about Herod. He said, it's better to be Herod's pig than his, one of his sons. That's actually, there's like a pun there in Latin, like it, that he, he made this joke. It's better to be one of Herod's pigs than uh, his son. So he's is savage, he's bitter, um, he has this warped nature. Um, when he was about 70 years old, this, this King Herod um, retired to Jericho. He knew his, his end was coming near, he knew he was about to die, and he didn't want Jerusalem to celebrate his death. So he had a bunch of the elite uh, Jewish people arrested. And on the day he died, he had them murdered. He had them killed as well because he wanted the whole country to mourn on the day that he died. And so this is the guy that is in power when Jesus is born. He's, a, he's just a, a, a terrible ruler, um, and, he, and he's working for Rome, and, he, and he's trying to preserve power. So it, it's like, you know, we, we'll read through the Christmas story and get like all warm and fuzzies. Like this is a, a, just a really crazy time to be born, and what Jesus is born into is with this guy in charge. It says that during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. The magi from the east, the, th- the three kings, right? Um, trying to understand who these people are, the magi. There's all sorts of uh, discussion about who they are. Um, and even the word is difficult to translate um, of magi. It's where we, we might get the word magician. Um, but we, we know even from extra-biblical sources like Herodotus, this Greek historian, that he said there were magi that were ancient Medes from the east. And so from the east, you have like the Persians, the Babylonians, and the Medes. They were like a tribal people in the Persian Empire. They tried to overthrow the Persian government and failed, and then they became a tribe of like priests, and astrologers, similar to like what the, the, the Levites were for Israel. There were these mages, these religious people that searched the, scar- the stars and were considered to have wisdom. So with that, they had influence with rulers. The rulers would come to them when they had dreams, when they were lo- looking for um, uh, like oracles and, and prophecies. They, like, they would go to the Magi to understand what was happening. And the Magi, they would search the heavens and tell them, hey, this is what we think is going on right now. They became instructors to the kings. Um, and here's the thing, like with the Magi, we, we don't actually know how many of them arrive in this story. We think there's three, because that's what John Hopkins' song is about, the three kings. Um, but Scripture doesn't say how many there were. We, we think there might be three because they had three gifts. But that's another one of those things that we're not sure. I don't want to ruin Christmas for you. There might have been more. Um, Some of the early uh, uh, church fathers at some times thought there were 10 to 12. Others thought there were less. 
And then finally, some of the church fathers started to give them names. And they gave them three names, which is a reason why we think there might be three. They gave them the names Melchon and Balthazar and Casper. And Casper was a friendly magi. So he was one of the... So, but they're, they're, not, they're not Jewish. They're not from God's people. They're from somewhere else. And I think what is so interesting is they're a part of a, a, a foreign empire with these ancient religions that search the stars for truth. And here they are pursuing a star that has led them to Jesus entering the world. So God has done something to draw these magi across the world to the place where Jesus was born. And he's used the heavens for it. A star has appeared in the sky. And it's the language that they would understand with what they were studying and searching. And God uses this moment to bring them to the presence of Jesus. And we don't know what that star was. We, we think maybe, uh, you know, if God just puts a star in the sky, he can do that. He's the creator of the universe. Some people speculate that it was Halley's Comet, which appeared around 12 BC. That's probably a little bit too early. Um, there's another uh, opinion that I heard that I thought was super interesting is that around 5 BC, Jupiter and Saturn aligned, creating a, a, like a blast of light. And, and for the, astro- uh, the astrologers, uh, Jupiter represented like a king, and Saturn oftentimes in the ancient world represented the Jewish people. And so as these two, what they, they thought were stars that aligned, for them it was like there's a Jewish king that's been born. That, that, that's interesting. Or God was saying, I'm bringing the Son of God to earth, and he puts the star in the sky. Whatever it is, it gets the attention of the Magi. And they are giving up everything to travel the world to find out who has been born here. Why are the heavens declaring that a king has been born? It has caught their attention. This is an interesting theological concept of how God reveals himself to humanity. Because if you're a good systematic theologian, you would say, well, God, you know, he reveals himself through his word, through his church, and through his people. But here you have God drawing these foreign magicians in with the heavens. As Roman 1 says, God's invisible qualities have been made known. His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made so that people are without excuse. That, that the heavens declare who, that God is real that he's up to something, and it captures the attention of the Magi, and they travel to find it. They travel to find the birth of this king, and they long to be in his presence. Them traveling also gets Herod's attention. Verse 3 says this, when Herod heard, when he heard this, he was disturbed. He's not excited. He's not thrilled. He's not, oh, great, the Messiah has come. It says he's disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. This is probably something he should have known. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this was the, what the prophet has written. And then it quotes Micah 5.2. It says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully, carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Bum, bum, bum. It's like if it had a soundtrack. So like he's obviously lying. And, And the Magi are like picking up on this. Like he, this Herod the Great has called us in and invited like, in himself to be a part of this journey that we, we are seeking the Messiah, and he wants to join in with us. And, and right here, right from the birth of Jesus, something interesting has happened. Jesus has just been born, and already people are responding one way or another. The very presence of Jesus comes into this world, And you see right here in the story two different responses. You have the Persian mystics who were drawn from across the globe to worship Jesus. And you have the king who represents the Jewish people now lying about his intentions to worship Jesus so he can get rid of Jesus. To put it another way, the Magi, they give up security, comfort, and routine. All of that is sacrificed to worship Jesus. For Herod's security, comfort, and routine are threatened because of Jesus. Right here in the story, you see a choice has to be made. What does the presence of this baby Jesus mean? And this is important because we are faced with this same choice. Who is Jesus? What does he demand of us? Is, is it like the Magi? We, we, we've been longing for this. We're willing to, to pursue it above any other thing, it breaks our routine, we, we, we chase after it? Or is it like Herod? It disrupts our lives. It feels like we, we, we want to preserve our, our control of everything. We are our own king. We're faced with the same decision. Verse 9 goes on to say this. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. They opened up their, their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And this is the story of the Magi. They don't go back to Herod. They have come for what they have sought. They have worshipped at the feet of Jesus. They have poured out abundantly what they have brought to Jesus. There's much to be said about these gifts. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I like the idea of it, but, you know, gifts, the gold is a gift for a king. That, that, that could say, hey, we, we think this, this child is, is going to be a king and is represented with the gifts that they give. Uh, the, the, the gold was for a king. The frankincense is for a priest. Like Jesus is our high priest. There's something about the identity of this baby that they're, they're pouring out these gifts for, saying he's a priest. Myrrh is a perfume to embalm a dead body. It's a gift. It's a, it's a death gift. It's a gift for someone who is going to die. There's something about the identity of Jesus. He has come to live, but also to die, that, that you could say that those gifts represent something. Um, but as we, as we think of this story of the Magi, who they were, what they were up to, what they pursued, how God got a hold of their attention, there's a couple of questions that emerge from this passage. 
And I want us to consider these questions as we consider this story and as we're heading towards Christmas where we celebrate Jesus coming to earth because these same questions are for us as they were for the Magi. And the first question is this, what is it that you seek? What is it that you're chasing after in life? What is it that you're pursuing? What is it that you seek after? I think we seek after all sorts of different things. But I think that all of them come from some primal, uh, some primal longings and hunger that we have as humans. I think that the, the, the Magi were, were, were pursuing truth. It had drawn them across. They wanted to meet the Messiah. But what is it that you seek? There's a covenant pastor who wrote a book called um, Embodying, uh, Embodying the Presence of God and, and talking about what, you know, the, the role of the church in society. And he, he talks about how like, the church needs to, to lean into these primal hungers from people. Because the world will take those hungers and do all sorts of things with them. But as the church, what we, what we know is the story that we have, like the wise men, the, the presence of Jesus fulfills what our hunger is. And these primal hungers, here, here's what they are. The first is this hunger for transcendence. To be a part of something that's, that's just bigger than ourselves. To be a part of something that we have this level of awareness of the spiritual realm, of the, the world going on. There's something more than just what we see here and now. And there's somehow a desire to connect to those realities. That this isn't just all we see. We long for transcendent experiences. The presence of God. To have a life of transcendence. To know that we are connected with eternity. People will pursue this in all sorts of ways. The second hunger is a a hunger for community. A longing to be connected in in meaningful relationships with others. And and while we live in this hyper-individualism of our culture, this still continues to be a dominant hunger for us. To be connected with other people. Like-minded people. To be connected with people that we love doing life with. I think this is why... Uh, Christmas can be so challenging is because that longing for community, when that, when that breaks down, whether for dysfunction or loss, Christmas is a time where that, that becomes very evident in our lives. So Christmas can be a hard time for people because we have this longing to be connected with community, this hunger for it. And then the third thing is purpose, that our life counts for something that we're, we're a part of something that's bigger than ourselves, that, that our lives have meaning, that our life has legacy, that we make a difference with, with our life. is this primal experience. So what is it that you seek? There's, there are these, these primal hungers that we have that I think the wise men have. And I think this is why they have pursued this star across the earth, chasing after a transcendent experience, a life of purpose, to see the, the presence of this Messiah that has come into this world. But here's what happens. This first question, what do we seek? We also have to ask, where do we look for those things that we seek? Where is it that we look for them? Because the world understands these hungers, and the world will provide all sorts of different answers for how we meet that hunger. Like, well, the, the easy thing to say is idols. We, we have these idols that we, we try to meet the things that we seek, and we'll, we'll, we'll find them in things that we idolize. And like when we think idols, we think like Old Testament, like statues. Like those, yeah, we don't have those anymore, but, but what those represented, we, we still pursue. 
in all sorts of different ways. What an idol is, is it's something that we find our identity in, we find our, 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 our uh, sense of uh, worship and joy, we, we pursue with, with everything, we try to find our contentment, uh, we try to find our purpose, all of that, we, we pursue it. And when it's outside of God, what it does is it leaves us exhausted. Timothy Keller says, it's, an idol is anything that is more important to you than God. An idol is something that you've, you've tried to meet those hungers with outside of God. And the tricky thing about idols is they're harder to identify in our modern world. They're much more disguised. And the other thing that's tricky about idols is we get super defensive when people start to attack them. And we will, we will fight tooth and nail to, to protect and preserve our idol because we think the thing that we're seeking and the thing that we hunger for will be met with this thing that we've idolized. Another thing that we, we do where we, we seek to meet our hunger is ideologies, different systems and narratives that we, we define our lives around, that we pursue um, with, 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 okay, this is the narrative that I'm, I am now living in, and it's a system of ideas or ideals, and it could be anything from a religious ideology to a, a philosophical or a political or an economic, and, and all of our hope has been put into this ideology. And it, be, it becomes this something that this is where we are seeking to meet our needs that our hunger is longing to go to. And ideologies, the, the thing about them that are tricky is they're not bad. And they make great servants but terrible masters. And, and we, what, what happens is that that causes us to, to pursue all sorts of different things. And then the third thing is individualism. We le- look to meet the hunger from within, like self-actualization. Like I could be the answer to all of my problems. If I, if I just get enough awareness, if I just get enough education, I can figure this out on my own. And, and we're, we're good at this, I think, especially in, in a place like as beautiful as, as Phoenix, because we're high-capacity people that are driven, that know how to figure things out on our own. But the problem is what we seek and what we need is actually outside of ourselves. In the story of the Gospels, we come to the end of ourselves, and we say, we can't fix it. Only Jesus can. So what is it that you seek, and then where is it that you are seeking it? For, for the, the Magi, they're, they're seeking the Messiah. They have pursued the Messiah across the earth to find him. Out of these primal urges to say, I, I, I long for this transcendent experience with the creator of the universe. Here's what A.W. Tozer says about this. Um, the yearning to know what cannot be known, to comprehend what is incomprehensible, to touch and to taste the unapproachable arises from the image of God in the nature of man. Something deep inside of us, deep calls unto deep, and through polluted and landlocked, and though polluted and landlocked, by the mighty disaster theologians call the fall, sin, and brokenness. The soul senses its origin and longs to return to its source, which is God. And for the, the wise men, the magi, deep calls to deep, and they are pursuing the Messiah, they are pursuing truth, and God meets them with the presence of this baby Jesus. What they have sought after, they've looked in the right place, and God has met them. Those same questions we have to wrestle with. What is it that we seek after, and where do we look? And then finally, this last question is that they come and they worship. 
And, and the question is, what is it that we give? What is it that we give in our worship? Because the worship of God is the only, it's the only thing we truly worship that gives us life. All the other things that we pursue, all the other ways we try to meet these hungers, all the, the things that we give our worship to will not meet our needs of, of life that is eternal. Only God gives us that type of life. And only he is, only our worship belongs to him. What is it that we give as our, our spiritual act of worship? Our lives, our time, our thoughts, our hopes, our precious resources, the culmination of all that is in our heart to fall at the feet of Jesus in worship. Giving gifts uh, for Christmas, my wife and I are far behind on this this season. Sometimes we're, you know, Black Friday, we've got all of our Christmas presents. Um, we looked at each other the other day, and I'm like, we haven't even started yet. We haven't shopped for anything. Um, and, uh, and so, like, we, we've got, like, all these last-minute, you know, things that we're scrambling to do. Um, I, I love the idea of intangible gifts uh, for Christmas. And when it comes to, like, what is it that we give, I, I think the intangible gifts that come from God's people are the most meaningful things. And, like, you're like, yeah, of course, you're a pastor. That's, like, you know, you're supposed to say that. Um, but, but here's my hot thought and my hope. It's something I return to every year at this time when it comes to what is it that we give. These are my suggestions for you. And so maybe you're like, you know, you're the intangible gift that you just keeps on giving this year. I, it's more than that. But, but consider these gifts for Christmas. What is it that we give? Forgiveness for those who have wronged you. Forgiveness will be Forgiveness will be your most costly gift because forgiveness takes something out of you. Forgiveness is something that is not easy. And if you want to know the heart of God and the price that he paid, we see that with forgiveness, which is the cross. Forgiving others who have wronged you. Grace for those who owe you. Patience for those who annoy you. Um, we... We call this an EGR, extra grace required. You all have them. <laughs> Patience for those who annoy you. Surprises for the overlooked and the unassuming. Prayer for those who need miracles. Comfort for those who are grieving. Kind words for your enemies. Hope for those despairing. Light for those in darkness. Love for those who are unlovable. In the presence of Christ through your life. Because the presence of Christ, the Holy Spirit, it talks about fruit that comes from that evidence that God is in our life. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That the presence of Christ in us would be a gift to others. So this Christmas, what is it that we seek? Where is it that we seek? And what is it that we are giving as we head towards Christmas to celebrate the gift that God has given us? May we be intentional with our giving. As we uh, close our time today, I want to invite the band up. We're going to close with a time of communion. And what communion is, is, is uh, it shows us the gift that God has given us, the gift of salvation that comes from this Christmas story, that the baby Jesus, God loves the world so much that he doesn't give up on the world. He sends Jesus here. And salvation is a gift. It's grace. And as we take communion, we are reminded of, of that gift. 
We do it in remembrance, and we do it in proclamation. I want to read this. Hear the words of Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I have received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. That is for you. It's a gift. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember and we proclaim. So today, we're going to take communion together. We have intinction stations set up on this side and on this side of the room and in the back. If you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to the table today to remember, to receive, to proclaim, and to hear these words from the church, global and historic, that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us. Lord, we're grateful for the cross how this story ends with the ultimate sacrifice. But Christmas reminds us of the beginnings of this life that you lived, how you came right under the nose of a a tyrant ruler, drawing foreigners from the east in the form of a vulnerable baby. Lord, may this story just stir in our hearts a reminder of how you work in this world. This wouldn't be something we take for granted. And today, Lord, as we come and we remember the incarnation, we remember the Christmas story, we ask that you would meet us here because you are alive. And as we remember and we proclaim, Lord, that you would mold our hearts to be more like you, to be the people that you desire. Let us wrestle with these questions. May you challenge us in ways that bring about more of your kingdom. And it's in your name we pray, amen.